I'm sure over this past week you've seen at least parts of the various ceremonies that have been connected to the Queen's death. Some of you may have been glued to the coverage of it all, but I understand, I realize it's not everyone's cup of tea. But even for those who aren't overly interested in the coverage, it's pretty hard to miss it. And one of the striking things about all the ceremonies is how much Scripture is involved. How much, in particular, the words of Jesus are being quoted again and again. I would expect that to be equally the case during the actual funeral tomorrow. Jesus' words will be quoted, he will be addressed in prayer, and millions across our nation will listen, and they will feel touched in some way. And yet they will listen and feel touched without any real grasp of what significance those words have. They will hear the words of Jesus without understanding Jesus. And as we turn to John's gospel this morning, we're going to see it has always been this way. From the beginning, even those who met Jesus in the flesh, even among those people, they met him, they heard his words from his own lips, many of them failed to understand Jesus and his words. And our passage is going to show us three ways that people misunderstand Jesus and then correct each of those misunderstandings. So let's turn to John chapter 7. If you're using a church Bible, you'll find that on page 1071 or in the larger print Bibles 1659. Just to remind you of the context, at the end of chapter 6, we saw an incredible dip in Jesus' popularity. The chapter started with thousands flocking to Jesus and then receiving bread from him. But in the aftermath of that, Jesus challenged those crowds to receive him as the bread of life, the bread that came down from heaven. And as he explained what that meant, John told us many of his disciples decided his teaching was too hard to accept. They turned back and no longer followed him. And now uh, following on from that mass turning away from Jesus, we're going to pick up at chapter 7 verse 1 and read down to verse 24. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify that its works are evil. 
You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also. Not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You're demon-possessed, the cried answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you were all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. This is God's Word. And as I said earlier, it shows us three ways people misunderstand Jesus, and it goes on to correct each of those misunderstandings. First, in verses 1 to 13, it tells us, He did not come to impress us. Chapter 7 begins with the words, after this, meaning after this mass desertion from among Jesus' disciples. After that, he continued to go around Galilee. In other words, he stayed up in the northern part of Israel. Why? Well, verse 1 says it was because he did not want to go about in Judea in the south because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. Why were they wanting to do that? Well, the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem in Judea, he healed a man on the Sabbath. And then he proceeded to say he was entitled to do that because he is God. The Jewish leaders did not like that at all. And so, Jesus has been staying in the north, away from Jerusalem. But verse 2 explains that one of the biggest events in the national calendar is just about to take place the Jewish festival of tabernacles. That festival was set up by God himself to celebrate the ingathering of harvest. 
took place every year in either September or October. It varied from year to year. It lasted for seven days, and it drew huge crowds into Jerusalem from all over Israel. That festival is about to happen, and Jesus' brothers, helpfully, they think, have put their heads together, and they've come up with a great strategy for their big brother. At least they think it's a great strategy. Jesus' brothers are younger than him, born to Mary and Joseph in the ordinary way, after Jesus' extraordinary birth. The Gospels of Matthew and Mark give us their names, James, Joseph, Judas, more commonly known as Jude, not to be confused with Judas Iscariot, and Simon. And these four young guns seem to think their big brother needs a bit of career advice. No doubt they're very aware his popularity has dropped off a cliff. And they're happy to give him the benefit of their great wisdom in verse 3. Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. In what sense do they not believe in Jesus? Well, clearly they do believe he can do amazing things. It's safe to assume they've seen plenty of Jesus' miracles. And they're encouraging him to go to Jerusalem and do more of those miracles. What they don't believe in is the stuff Jesus has been saying about needing to trust in his sacrificial death as the only way to eternal life. That's what caused many of his disciples to turn away from him in chapter 6. And his brothers aren't accepting that either. They think Jesus' approach is all wrong. On their reckoning, he was doing well while he stuck to healing people and providing miraculous bread and fish. And so they say, what you need to do, big brother, is forget the stuff about giving your flesh for the life of the world. Instead, take yourself to the festival and do a few miracles. That will get things back on track for you. What's the problem with their advice? The problem is they badly misunderstand Jesus. They think his aim is self-promotion. They think he's angling to become a prominent figure in society. They think he wants adulation and popularity. And if that's what you want, then sure, the obvious thing to do is try and impress people. But the truth is, Jesus did not come to impress us, but to save us. Look at Jesus' answer to his brothers in verse 6. Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me, because I testify that its works are evil. 
You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. In the wider context of John's gospel, Jesus' time, which is referred to often, his time is the time for his death on the cross. That's why he came to earth. Not to win I'm a celebrity, but to give his life as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what that means is, day to day, Jesus' life is not focused on what will impress the crowds and get me a following. His life is focused on his great mission, to die a sacrificial death. And so, yes, he does many miracles, but never with the purpose of gaining popularity. We've seen before his miracles are referred to as signs. They have a significance beyond themselves. They're intended to show who Jesus is and what he came to do. And because this world is in rebellion against God, the more it sees who Jesus is, the more it's offended by him, the more it hates him. Why? Why does the world hate him? Because the very fact that he came to take away sin means we are sinners who need someone to save us. Jesus refers to that in verse 7. The world can't hate his brothers because at least at this point in their life, his brothers think just like the world. So they give no offense to the world. But the world hates Jesus because his very presence as the Lamb of God on his way to death for our sin, isn't that a testimony to the world that its works are evil? If the world's works were good, there would be no need for the Lamb of God to come and offer himself for the world. People don't tend to be impressed when they're told their works are so evil, only the death of God's Son could pay for them. But that was Jesus' message. And the point here, as you and I seek to understand Jesus ourselves, the point is he is still not trying to impress people. His aim now as the risen Savior is to save people from their sins, still. So as the church of Jesus Christ, our calling is not to try and make Jesus impressive. We're not called to take on the mantle of Jesus' brothers and try to rebrand him and present him as the guy who will make all your dreams come true and give you your best life now. Now it is true, Jesus does satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart, we do find true life in him. But those things come as we recognize that our works are evil and we look to him as our savior. Jesus did not come to win any popularity contests. And as the church, we are not called to try and enter him in any popularity contests. 
We're to present him to the world as he is. The crucified Savior who is our only hope because our works are evil. And what we've just heard from Jesus explains what happens next. In verse 8, he says to his brothers, you go to the festival, I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also. Not publicly, but in secret. As we read this, we wonder, of course, what happened here? Did Jesus change his mind? Or was he deceiving his brothers? Well, the answer is neither of those explain what happens here. The key is in what Jesus has already said to his brothers. He's not working to the same agenda as them. They want him to do what's most impressive, what will gain him the most popularity. But those concerns are irrelevant to Jesus. His concern is to die for the sin of the world. And every day of his life is dictated by that mission. So as we've seen, in the ultimate sense, his time refers to the time of his death. But that means his daily plans are decided with that big plan in mind. As he considers that big plan, he decides what it is time for each day. So when he tells his brothers in verse 8, I'm not going up to this festival, the sense is, I'm not going on your terms. I'm not going when you think it's time. I'm going when it's time according to the plan of God that rules my life. So rather than seeing here a Jesus who's irresolute and who changes his mind day to day, actually we're seeing a Jesus who is absolutely resolved to follow the plan his Father has given him and to follow it at the Father's time. Notice verse 10 says, he goes to the festival not publicly, as his brothers wanted, but in secret. Going later and going by himself allows him to slip into Jerusalem unnoticed. Verses 12 and 13 give us the opinions people have of Jesus, not publicly, but in secret. Some think he's a good man, others think he's a deceiver, but no one will say anything publicly for fear of the leaders. And so we might think this is the perfect opportunity for Jesus to come forward and defend himself, to persuade people that he's not a deceiver, to persuade them that he is a good man, but verses 14 to 18 show us he did not come to persuade us, but to glorify his Father. Verse 14 says, Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having been taught? In other words, he hasn't been to university. More specifically, he hasn't been taught by one of the famous rabbis. 
he doesn't have the appropriate training. Now, they can't really deny that Jesus is a powerful teacher, but what they're doing is trying to discredit him by saying he doesn't have the right qualifications. And in a moment, we'll see Jesus' response to them will show that's what's going on. It's a challenge, really, to Jesus. Win us over to your side. Prove to us that we ought to listen to you. What have you got that Rabbi so-and-so hasn't got, Jesus? In the previous section, Jesus' brothers were urging him to impress the crowds with miracles. Here, he's being challenged in a similar but slightly different way. To impress the crowds with his persuasive abilities. But again, Jesus refuses to play it their way. Look at verse 16. Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak in my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Jesus makes the highest possible claim for his teaching. He says it comes from God. But notice he refuses to try and prove that through debate and smart arguments. You see that in verse 17. He says to them, you're only going to recognize that my teaching comes from God when you commit yourselves to do God's will. Come with that attitude, Jesus says, and you will see my teaching for what it truly is. If you're going to stand there and demand to be persuaded, if you're going to insist on being won over by clever arguments from me, you will never come to see the truth of my teaching. If Jesus was trying to gain popularity, he would give these people what they wanted. He would produce knock-down arguments that would win them over to him. And by doing that, he would win a following among those who are impressed by knock-down arguments and intellectual fireworks. But that's not what Jesus is trying to do. As he says in verse 18, he's seeking the glory of the one who sent him, his father. And his father is glorified when men and women commit themselves to love and obey the father. And so, maybe shockingly to us, Jesus refuses to persuade these people. He calls them to seek not clever arguments that are going to satisfy their intellectual snobbery, no, Jesus says, seek to do God's will and you'll recognize where my teaching comes from. There are a couple of ways this is relevant to us. Maybe for someone here this morning, this is a direct challenge to you. To stop demanding that God answers all your questions and overcomes all your objections. 
Maybe you're being challenged this morning to change your attitude. Instead of taking the stance of an examiner who has to be convinced by God, take the stance of one who genuinely seeks to honor God. Like Jesus, seek to glorify God and you will see the truth of Jesus' words. So this may be relevant to some of us on a personal level, but it's also relevant to the church as a whole. Because we can fall into the trap of thinking it is our role to persuade men and women into God's kingdom. We can feel a pressure to win arguments, to bowl people over with our explanations and our defense of Jesus and his words. And please don't misunderstand, it is right that we do our very best to understand Scripture and grow in our ability to explain Scripture. The Bible itself says we're to be ready to give the reason for the hope that we have. Christianity is a reasonable faith. And there are lots of helpful answers to the genuine questions that unbelievers have. In that sense, we should be ready to persuade people. In the New Testament, we see the Apostle Paul making efforts to do that. But what Jesus shows us here is that at least some of the time, those who question Christianity and who demand to be persuaded, they're simply seeking an excuse to reject Jesus and his claims. Their demand to be persuaded is not a genuine seeking after God. It's a way to avoid dealing with God. It's a way to dismiss Jesus' claims. And so as Christians, as we follow Jesus' example and seek the glory of God, there will be times when we stop trying to persuade people. And instead, we challenge them. Give up insisting that God explain and defend himself to you. Instead, commit yourself to find out what pleases him. Seek his glory rather than your own intellectual satisfaction, and you will discover the truth about Jesus. Then, very much in line with what we've just seen so far, verses 19 to 24 show us Jesus did not come to congratulate us, but to humble us. We've seen several ways that we as Christians can take wrong turns in our witness for Jesus, trying to make him impressive and trying to argue people into trusting him. But isn't this another wrong turn we can easily take? In our eagerness to attract people to Jesus, We can present him as being so impressed with us that he's just delighted we would even consider him. I saw a Christian video once where the speaker assured everyone watching that God's not mad at you, he's mad for you. And I'm sure that was well meant. 
The Bible certainly agrees that God does love the world, but not because we're lovable. The Bible tells us God's love is a gracious love. Our sin means we are under his wrath. He loves us in spite of our unloveliness. So the fact that he loves us doesn't give us reason to congratulate ourselves. It humbles us. It gives us reason to be amazed at his mercy. That's the Bible's perspective. But in our eagerness to sell Jesus to people, we can give the idea that he'd be mad not to be mad for us. Because we're so great. But that is not the approach we see from Jesus. Here in Jerusalem, he's surrounded with people who have come, come to celebrate this God-ordained religious festival. These are religious people. And uniquely among the nations around them, these are religious people who have God's law. That law set them apart from those other nations. And they're very concerned with the finer details of keeping that law. So we might think if ever there were people in line for Jesus' congratulations, it's these people surely. But look what Jesus says to them in verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you're all amazed. Yet, because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. I realize it's easy to get lost in the ins and outs of what Jesus is saying here, but essentially he mentions two aspects of the law of God, which these people are so proud of having and so proud of keeping, Jesus points to two aspects of the law, and he says the law gives you no reason to congratulate yourselves. It's a reason to humble yourselves, because you don't keep the law, and you don't understand it anywhere near as much as you think you do. In verse 19, Jesus says, you have the law, yet not one of you keeps it. As evidence for that, Jesus says they're trying to kill him. And murder, of course, breaks one of God's commandments in the law. Now, a good chunk of this crowd could object that they aren't actually trying to kill him. They're just standing there listening to him. And in fact, they do object in verse 20, who's trying to kill you? Not us, Jesus. You're crazy. Or maybe even worse than crazy. We've known since chapter 5 that the Jewish leaders are seeking to kill him. 
But the crowds haven't been involved in that yet. And that's the key word. They haven't been involved in it yet. But the fact is, before long, Jesus will be killed in this city. And it will be these crowds who refuse Pilate's attempt to release Jesus. These men and women who are so shocked that Jesus would accuse them of trying to kill him, before long they will roar out to Pilate for Pilate to crucify Jesus. That's what these good, proud, religious people have in them. At heart, they are anti-Christs. As we all are apart from God's mercy. And that realization takes away any sense of self-congratulation. It humbles us. It causes us to seek God's mercy. In verses 21 and 23, Jesus makes a second reference to the Old Testament law. He starts by referring back to the incident in chapter 5 during his last visit to Jerusalem when he healed a man on the Sabbath and he was accused of breaking the Sabbath, so breaking God's law. But Jesus simply says, look, God's law says that every boy has to be circumcised. That was the sign of God's covenant with Israel. And the law said the circumcision had to be done on the eighth day after birth. So if the day of circumcision falls on the Sabbath, Jesus says, you go ahead and perform the circumcision, don't you? And everyone agrees that's not breaking the Sabbath. It's actually honoring God that the sign of God's grace, circumcision, falls on the day of God's rest. But Jesus says in verse 23, when I heal a man's whole body on the Sabbath, when I bring that greater sign of God's grace on the day of God's rest, you get murderously angry with me. His point is, facing up to that anger should cause these people to humble themselves. It ought to show them they're not the super-duper religious experts they think they are because they're failing to see that Jesus is bringing much greater grace and wholeness than circumcision ever did. So Jesus says to them in verse 24, stop judging by mere appearances. Instead, judge correctly. Even if we got a bit lost in trying to grasp Jesus' point in the previous verses, we can get what he's saying here, can't we? These people think they're excellent judges of what it means to please God. They probably think they're doing an excellent job of pleasing God. But the reality is God's own Son is among them, and they don't recognize Him. So they ought to stop waiting for congratulations from God and instead humble themselves before God. That is the only way to salvation. That's the only way our lives will ever come to honor and glorify God. 
Not by exalting ourselves, but by humbling ourselves. By seeing Jesus as our only hope. Relying on him as our savior. The one who makes God known to us. The one who by his sacrificial death reconciles us to God. And as a church, this has to be the way we witness to Jesus. We don't need to rebrand him. We don't need to argue people into his kingdom. We don't have to make people feel good about themselves. We present Jesus as the Savior sent from God. And we call the world to join us in humbling ourselves before him. Letting go of our pride and our desire to be congratulated by God for our goodness and our achievements. We call the world to join us in letting go of that and simply trusting ourselves to God's grace and mercy given to us through Jesus. That is how we love the world around us. By presenting Jesus as he is. Rather than presenting him as this world might like him to be. It is by seeing Jesus for who he is that men and women enter into the life and the joy Jesus gives. Our final song expresses the joy that comes from understanding Jesus. And through Jesus, receiving God's amazing, undeserved love. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Let's praise God together.
grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.